just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Hey, sports fans, welcome to Sports Nerds. Here are your hosts, Dr. Samuel J. and Dr. Brian Schrader. Let me get my notes out, my little prep notes. Those are some good articles that you sent me, by the way. Yeah. Or at least the, I like the Baseball America one. That was really good. Is that the only one I sent? Uh, yeah, but I think we... You sent some other ones. Uh, I just don't remember which one. Which ones? Uh, okay. All right. Uh, let's see. How should we get this started? Always try to make it sound totally natural. Hey, Brian Schrader. That sounds natural, right? That sounds... That doesn't sound so like we've been having a five-minute conversation before <laughs> we just hit record. It's called a production meeting. Oh, yeah. Good call. We like to do those five-minute production meetings right before we roll out the show. Uh, hi, everybody. You're listening to Sports Nerds. If you're watching us on Instagram, hi. All I see is one viewer, and that's you, Brian. So, Oh, wait. V- video has oh. ended. Huh. Look at that. I guess um, nobody's watching us on Instagram, that's huh? all they get. That is crazy. Um, hmm. Interesting. I don't want my video to be available soon. I want to go live now. Go live. All right, let's check out. You'll have to enter in there again. So we're fine. Okay, well, so that we're getting that set up. I mean, the bulk majority of the people who care about what we do want to listen to our podcast anyways, so they don't really give a shit about Instagram TV. So hi, Brian. Um, any updates on life right now for us? Uh, not much. Nothing. Okay. Um, you not lost your bet. You lost your bet on Friday night, to me. Yes, that's true. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. The 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 uptake of that around here seems to be that Iowa is just an underrated team. Okay, well that makes it either way. So less of an upset. It was also February first, so yeah. or Jan- January thirty first. I don't think it was February. Um, are you going to join the IG thing? Oh, I thought you were undoing it. No. Yeah, it just started it up again. Oh, so yeah, we're I'll, good. Re- I'll rejoin. Um, okay, so yeah, so that was a big win for Iowa. Hope you're right. Yeah. Um, I think I won the shit-talking battle, though, to be perfectly frank. Yeah, you probably did, <laughs> for sure, right? Um, Even though my team lost, which doesn't seem fair, but... You know, that's your go-to argument, though, about any Iowa sport, is that it's just a bunch of, you know, farm kids who... Uh, it's like Hoosiers, right? You make you. It's like Hoosiers. That's what you tend to argue. Without you know, I mean, it's hard to argue that. Yeah. Although, Your team's so much like Hoosiers, they have to pass the ball four times before they can take a shot. I know that's what we do. It's it's definitely not. If you watch like, Hoosiers a lot. That's a good joke. That's a deep cut. Yeah, I can't say. I don't think I've ever watched Hoosiers all the way through. Oh, it's a good movie. I know. I know. I, know. I, I was thinking. Hoosiers. Um, I don't. Th- I told you this summer. I think when I'm teaching sports discourse, I'm just going to teach it as a film class, not as a film studies class. Yeah, that would get that would piss the English department off. But uh, yeah. as a film class, so you could do you could do what we're going to talk about today. You could you could show Moneyball and uh, Trouble with the Curve. Yeah, that's true. That could be competing discourses on scouting. That could be fun. You could pipe me in for that. I'll give that lecture. I was going to say, yeah, you're going to have to come in and, or you're going to have to guest lecture for me for sure. And I'll get Dan to do his Rocky Four lecture. Rocky Four. Oh, man, I want to take this class. I know. That class is going to, it's going to fill in an instant. I, I can't, but I can't. You're going to get so many emails. Oh, I want to be in your sports class. I'd be okay with that. I should try to, I need to figure out ways to advertise it across the campus without stepping on any toes. Because in academia, folks, that's how it works. 
people get upset when you teach classes that sound like classes they teach in their department. And it's as boring as I just made it sound, right? Curriculum development. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Brian and I have a fun show for you today. I think we're going to go analytical, right? We're going to go back to the sports nerds. The last episode, we didn't really do that. We were basically just drive time radio for <laughs> 40 minutes, but I think we'll try to be smarter this, this time. Uh, before we jump into that, uh, congrats to our friend Troy Morgan, who had his first child last week. Hey. So yeah, yeah, way to go, Troy. You did it. Um, if we were drive time, we'd have like a call-in segment to name that kid. <laughs> yes, I love that. That's great. Uh, pre be prepared, Troy. I don't know, like what the piece of ice is to be tired as fuck for at least the next 12 to 15 years. No, babies are easy. Two-year-olds, uh, that's babies. But Maybe the first two weeks, the first two weeks, that's it. Then they, then they want to eat all the time. They're like, yeah, I get this. A lot of sleeping and eating. I creak. Oh, kind of like. I, I had good kids. Maybe, maybe I got lucky. No, I did too. My I kids did. slept a ton. Yeah, I was, I think ours were, ours were good sleepers, but we were, we, we did the sleep training thing too. So there's, there was that. Yeah, we did were, you also like potty train your kids by the time they were, you know, 13 months or something? Dude, we did. We did. It was one of those things where we were just willing to, we didn't want to do it anymore didn't want to like change diapers shit like that so my kids up. are my kids are older now my, the, my only real parenting i think milestone left is to get my my five-year-old to be able to tie his shoes because I, I had to get him new shoes yesterday and he's over the velcro yeah but, yeah. but doesn't know how to tie shoes and tie, tying your kid's shoes seven times a day honestly is worse than changing a shitty diaper Dude, that's yeah. Because then you gotta get the right angle. You gotta get in there. Yeah. Sure. Oh, no, you're no. twisting my leg. Like, then put on the shoe by yourself. Wait. Um. So, at what age did you learn to tie your shoes? I have, I feel like, have no idea. I feel like I didn't learn until at least first or second grade. See, my daughter learned when she was six, the summer before first grade. But she insists that there's people, kids in her second grade class, like a handful, who can't tie their shoes. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I can think of at least two or three kids that I'm pretty sure by second grade I could tie my shoes. Well, you were advanced. Yeah, I was, I was very. They called me gifted. <laughs> were you? You weren't talented though. Look at gifted? that kid with the double knot there. Look, that Ooh. is good. Wow, this guy. Loop, swoop, and pull. So, congrats, Troy. Uh, the next thing, let's see. I don't, there's, is there something else? I mean, Iowa won. Troy had a baby. Um, I guess we'll jump into our topics. Before we do that, real quick, uh, social medias. Find us out there. See what we're doing. Um, we, we like to have some fun on social. We're on Instagram, Sports Nerds. We're on Twitter, Sports Nerds. We're on Facebook. So um, we would appreciate you following us, giving us a like if you haven't already. Uh, those of you who continue to listen to the show, thank you so much. Our view, our listenership, Brian, I was telling you earlier this week, um, we have increased listenership by 450% over the last 12 months. I think a wow. lot of that probably had to do, we, it's not like we were getting a ton at the beginning, but we're getting a good chunk now. So um, thanks to everybody who continues to listen to us and to share, whether that's through the social media, whether it's you know leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Anchor, whatever you do, it's, it's much appreciated. Uh, I think we're hopefully going to try to get back into this thing more often. Uh, you and I are our semesters are up and running. Um, baseball, I we're always, we, you and I, we, 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 you know, we're like yeah. miles, to, miles to a flame when it comes to baseball. We it's always true. Have to talk about. So today we're going to talk about baseball. Speaking of which, um, those of you who hate the game, we apologize. I think whatever we're going to say should be in depth and interesting. But we're going to begin first, Brian, your Super Bowl thoughts. <sighs> 
what? Yeah. There, no, it was yeah. boring, man. It was yeah, boring. It was. it was. It was not not an interesting game. I think this says it all. I've already told people this little anecdote, but I think it's pretty pretty telling. Uh, the, before they went to halftime, uh, Tony Romo and Jim Nance, I think it was Nance said, uh, uh, Boomer and the guys will be with you at halftime to go over all the first half highlights. And you could hear him roll his eyes. There was no <laughs> camera shot on Like what? What highlights are you going to go over? The Rams had 56 yards in the first half or something like that. Yeah, it was terrible. It was it terrible. Was... So I want to ask you. My, 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 here's, here's my true reaction. What mm-hmm. I texted you during the game, it should be on Saturday. That game would have been more interesting if it was on a Saturday night and you, you know you had more soda pops. Oh, I see. Not Sunday saying. night where you're like, Ugh, I got to go to bed anyways. Yeah. Yeah, um, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you could have you could have drank yourself into interest. Is what you're saying. You could have you know been engaged just through beer and, and alcohol. Yeah, kind of bad that? football games can be more interesting if you can have like a legit fun, you know, have a Super Bowl party or go someplace. But it's mm-hmm. Sunday night on the East Coast. I mean, the game didn't get over until eleven o'clock. You can't do anything. No, you can't. You really can't. And you kind of had to watch it during like through the entirety if you wanted to see who won. It wasn't a it wasn't blo- boring. Yeah, it, it was a blowout. It was boring, but it was close. But which is why a lot of people are like, oh, it actually wasn't that, you know, there, there's, there's a there's a, a, a good contingent of people who say, no, it wasn't boring. It was, you know, it was actually a defensive, you know, showcase. It was it was close, but it was boring and it was not a defensive showcase. That game was it was not. I think Mike Wilbon tweeted this uh, from ESPN. He was like, there are good defensive games, but not all low scoring games are good defensive games. Like they, wanna, they, 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 it's, it's not fair to say just because a game is low scoring that it was a good defensive game. It could also just be offensive incompetence. I want to ask you something because this is what we do. Um, like it was boring. And do you like defenders of the boring game? Not to say that Wilbon did that, but there were a lot of you know commentators that were like, oh, it was a defensive game and it was great. And if you appreciated defense, you would have watched it. And I guess my question is, is it supposed to be boring ever? I mean, aren't this what sports are supposed to be? And it, are you familiar with the bread and circuses thing? Mm. Like the, I mean, it was a, it was a, a Roman empire, uh, the Roman Colosseum uh, uh, practice, right? Or idea where, you know, as long as the masses have their bread, as long as they're fed and they have entertainment, they're not going to overthrow the empire or do something that uh, any of this, any of the Caesars or um, uh, sorry, emperors would have wanted. And so, you know, it's basically you appease them, you, you kind of numb them. And if we think about it that way, then sports have always already been this thing that's supposed to be entertaining and so when i was thinking through this right when i was thinking about you know bread and circuses and that line it's a book that came out a few years ago too that kind of goes into depth about the history of bread and circuses as this way to basically um uh, entertain appease and keep your population away from revolt because if they're entertained they're not going to uh, understand the power and discrepancies and all this stuff and how they're being screwed over so anyhow i was i was thinking through this and if that's like what sports is, sports is supposed to be, then that Super Bowl really sucked, and I don't want somebody to defend it. Because <laughs> it did; it was a shitty fucking Super Bowl, and it was. I don't care if you are a defensive minded person; it it wasn't exciting. Like like you said, there weren't even interceptions, or I mean, there was one, right? But it was just a boring, boring game. It didn't fulfill, I think, what we expect the Super Bowl to fulfill for us, whether or not you're a sports fan or not. We expect it to be something else. And add on to that, the halftime show sucked. And I love Outcast, but there was no Andre 3000. I hate Maroon 5, by the way. And the commercials weren't that great. 
Your go. Nah, that one NFL, like the top hundred NFL commercial, was fantastic. I think I was that that one individual commercial was great. If you don't know what it is, you should go see it. No, um, you're not you're not wrong. Uh, I the the theory you're referencing as soon as you said it reminded me of um the theory of of uh, carnivalesque or the car yeah. carnival, which yeah. is uh Mikhail Bakunin or a Bakhtin rather, not Bakunin, confusing my Russian philosophers. And this is the idea that you know he's he's sort of in bed with the existentialists who kind of say that you know life is uh, it, it's 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 we we find comfort in in weird things in life and and kind of uh, place meaning on them even though they're not all that meaningful to kind of distract ourselves from you know the fact that life is sort of hard and short and and can be depressing and and kind of meaningless and that the reason that we accept kind of uh, structure and and governance and control by higher powers is because we're oftentimes given outlets in which we can celebrate or carnival right where you can go and kind of be buck wild a great example of this is just think of like bourbon street you know mm-hmm. you know on fat tuesday but kind of any night any night of the, the the week or or downtown las vegas where kind of the rules don't apply and you can drink outside and you can you know what happens in vegas stays in vegas etc um sporting events in general and the super bowl in particular i think have always been uh, envisioned as kind of that same sort of outlet right where you can you can be a little bit crazier than you would otherwise be lots of people don't go to work the monday afterwards call in sick that sort of stuff um so yeah yeah i think i think you're right if if we want to see the super bowl as a function of that then in that sense it was a failure because it 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 was not something big and you know if the game could have been equally close and they could have scored a combined 75 points people would have been happier and that doesn't necessarily you know i said before a low scoring game does not necessarily mean it was a great defensive game. It's also true that a high-scoring game does not mean that it was a great offensive game. It could be poor defensive performances. But for some reason, I think especially when it comes to championship games and football where we expect scoring, um, you know, to not have those elements, it's different. I, I, I don't think you would have the same problem if it was a one nothing baseball game. I don't think you would have had the yeah. same blowback. But, I mean, but here's some stats to kind of put it in perspective. The lowest scoring Super Bowl ever before this one had a combined 21 point score the lowest ever out of all the super bowls meaning every other super bowl besides this one and that one had more than 21 combined scored points scored this one had 16 so i think i like, think even even football people can't defend that as interesting that's not what football is it's it's anathema to football it's right you know you get you get 10 games in baseball all the time you yeah. never get these low scoring games in football they don't exist oh. I want well, who, who, here's the theory. Here's the theory, right? So, so let's say that the baseball connoisseur, such as you and I, we make up a larger percentage of the baseball fan than the football connoisseur does of the football fan base. And so, what I mean by that is respecting and understanding the dominance that comes with a 1 0 baseball game uh, is more prevalent amongst the fans or the consumers of baseball than with football. In particular, if we want to think outside of just football in general, right, or get specific, excuse me, the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl is a thing that is a cultural phenomenon. It is not just a football phenomenon. It's not a sports phenomenon. It's much larger. And for that reason, maybe, the commentary about baseball being boring is not as in effect, not, it's, it's not as effective, right, um, as a sense as a sense-making commentary than football. Football, you could say, oh, it's boring. Somebody can write that or Wilbon can write that. And 
people who have watched the game will will be able to say a, a, a larger proportion of those people will be able to say, ah, yeah, it was boring. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not that baseball fans are smarter than football fans. That's not what I mean. I think that an, an, an awareness of how the game is played and what is valued and what is not is more prevalent amongst baseball fans as a whole than maybe with, with Super Bowl watchers as a whole, if that makes sense. No, I mean, I would guess, sense. right, like it would be interesting to go back and to, to read commentary on, you know, World Series games back when baseball was, was the dominant sport and those kind of 1-0 games compared to 10-9 games, what people thought of those, what was considered more exciting as opposed to more boring. Now, the reason why I would even say that is because I wanted to jump in real quickly to that article I sent you about Belichick and the dominance uh, that the Patriots had. And I think like, to me, reading that made me appreciate the game more, not because it was a defensive-minded game or a defensive game, but rather you can kind of, you can read this assessment. It's from Deadspin. It's called um, How the Patriots Defense Put the Rams in a Trash Can. But you respect, again, not the product that was on the field, but rather Belichick's approach to actually coaching that game. Like all of these stats that the Rams came in with compared to how the Patriots had played their entire season. So like cover four versus man-to-man. Patriots had played man defense, the vast majority of snaps during the regular season. They go to cover four to a zone defense in the Super Bowl because I think what was the stat? Jared Goff, 12 of his, 12 of his interceptions this regular season were thrown against uh, a, a zone defense as opposed to a man in which you only threw one or two. And like, to me, how is that not Belichick going, oh, here's where we have an advantage. We're going to plug this in and we're going to, you know, this game may be as boring as possible. But when you can read this kind of commentary and you see somebody, not us, right, but the person that wrote this who was uh, Dom Cast- uh, Casatino, who understands the game at that depth, it's kind of cool, right? I really appreciate it. I was actually talking to a buddy, uh, Travis, Travis White, um, yesterday, and you know, he was he was reading all of these commentaries on the Super Bowl and uh you know, talking about how the the Patriots front four just absolutely destroyed the front seven of the of the Rams because of the game, like they just flooded it on purpose. So every snap they would just flood uh, the middle lanes as much as possible. And that's boring to somebody who wants to watch the Super Bowl for the halftime show and the commercials and all that. But when you recognize the, uh, there's, I want to say, almost like an academic approach to the game, that kind of stuff becomes more interesting. Does that... I think you're you're right about that. I I was really sad when the Saints didn't win that um, uh, NFC Championship game because I deep down thought... That yeah. the, the Rams versus the Patriots was not going to be. I, I was cheering. I was cheering for the Rams. I was not cheering for the Patriots. But I really thought that um, that that Belichick was going to give uh, McVeigh a hard time. Just yeah. the experience gap is so wide. Yeah. And I said this to a couple people, you know, not on the podcast, that if this game is decided in the two weeks before the Super Bowl as opposed to on the field, then Belichick has a wild advantage. And the example you just gave is probably one of a thousand tendencies. That that Belichick and his crew identified with the Rams that they exploited during that during that football game, and even though the difference was only a touchdown at the end, um, I mean that's what it takes to 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 win a championship. The difference I think is that a team like the Saints, because their tendencies are mostly defined by the fact that they don't have tendencies that that uh, mm-hmm. um, Peyton is willing to you know fake fake punt uh, like he did in the the game before the, the in the division in the division game uh, yeah. to to onside kick to start the second half like he did in the Super Bowl against the Colts I think that takes a lot of the control out of out of Belichick's hands and that would have been 
the right way to play this this football game from the Rams' perspective and maybe would have made it more interesting. It didn't look like they made a, a lot of changes. Obviously, they were missing Cooper Cup, which makes which makes it hard. But once you start going down that lane, it's tough. Um, let me throw one or two more stats at you just because I really, for me, an um, important part of this is the people that are defending the Super Bowl as interesting are kind of just making one argument, which is low-scoring games aren't boring. You know that the, yeah. the fact that a low yeah. the, the game is low scoring does not make it boring on its face. It can still be interesting. That that does that ignores how atypically low scoring this game was. I already talked about the lowest scoring Super Bowls ever. The the Rams in this season in 2018 slash 2019 scored 527 points in 16 games, which is an average of 32.9 game points per game. 33 mm-hmm. points per game is what they scored this year. Right, which is twice as many as the combined score of the Super Bowl. The lowest scoring team in the NFL this year, uh, which was Arizona, scored 225 points over 16 games, which is 14.06 points per game, right? Which is almost as much as the combined total for this football game. So, yeah, fine. That a game is low scoring does not mean it's a boring football game. This is so far to the extreme of low scoring that you can't make that argument. And it doesn't pass the sniff test, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It was not. It was not a good one. Um, it was three three going into the fourth quarter, right? It was no. The Patriots did they score in the third? They scored or the in the fourth, fourth, I think. The fourth quarter. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It was just really boring. It was. It was hard. <laughs> okay. I there was a bet. There was a there was a prop bet out there. It was ten thousand to one if the combined score was seven points or less after the which was alive uh, in the third quarter. <laughs> that's crazy a 10,000 to one bet oh my god man yeah i mean i think that's that's it's the social it, it, it was hard to socialize with people at a super bowl party because the game was that boring and then you end up talking about stuff like that you don't want to talk about or like man you know, how many layers are in that dip uh it's seven bro yeah always exactly. seven it's always seven right you're paying attention to your kids <laughs> fighting more all this stuff all right so let's 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 pivot towards yet another boring sport except one that you and I love. Um, let's talk about, let's just jump into the shift uh, to begin with. And so to give this this uh, conversation a little bit of backstory, um, there's been a lot of conversation um, since since the end of the World Series, which by the way, Boston, wow, what a, what a world champion drought they had. Jeez, what was my buddy Jeff sent me? 97 days. 97, right? 97 days between championships. Days. Gosh, man, couldn't happen to a better city, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Boston fans out there. So yeah, so basically, uh, I think conversations were being had in Major League Baseball winter meetings. A lot of players are coming out um, against the shift and talking about how terrible is it all this is. Uh, Joey Gallo is one of the ones. He's a Texas Rangers outfielder talking uh, about uh, wanting to get rid of the shift. But what this article that Brian and I had read uh, from Five Thirty Eight, so it's it's Travis Sawchick basically looks at the numbers across the last 18 years, no, not 18, sorry, eight years, um, and shows that while the shift might be aggravating to some, uh, Major League Baseball hitters are, are kind of, they're finding a way to kill the shift on their own. And and I guess one of the main characteristics or one of the main um, things that stood out to me in this article is the fact that 
hitters just aren't hitting ground balls as much anymore. And so therefore uh, you're able to get over the shift. You're able to hit over the shift as opposed to hitting into it. And so um, I guess I like this because I think uh, I kind of take the approach that it's a, it's a thing, it's a defensive tool and you need to figure out how to, how to, you know, combat it as opposed to just getting rid of it. But what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I'm, I'm, I think less of a, a, a purist or a traditionalist when it comes to baseball than even you. I, I don't, I don't hate the DH by the way, as an aside, it's time to get over that. We've had the DH for you know, a billion years already. We just got our first one into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good, good point. Um, yeah. yeah, so so th- these sorts of innovations really don't um, don't don't bug me all that all that much. Not that I mean, the shift is. I think there's evidence that you had many shifts happening for for a long time. Um, I mean, it, honestly, is it is it that different than than moving outfielders based on on uh, on spray charts? I mean, we've done that's been happening in baseball for for years and years and years and years, all you're doing is, sh- is shading um, from, from one side, uh, from one side of the infield to the other side of the infield. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't understand why there's such a weird visceral reaction to it. And this article kind of points out that um, it doesn't seem like there's a wild statistical advantage associated with, uh, with the, the, the shift anyways. I will say this one thing about this, about this article that I think maybe misses the point is their their claim is that um, the shift happened, and as a result, uh, hitters are adjusting by hitting fewer power hitters are adjusting by hitting fewer ground balls. I think that that chain of causality may be incorrect. I think the explanation for more uh, more more for trying to hit the ball in the air and trying to hit fewer ground balls has less to do with the shift, though that can be part of it, than it does with a general trend towards launch angle. Uh, which is a separate analytical tool okay. um, that baseball players are relying on, and there's just a bunch of data um, that you know if you if you can find the the correct the correct launch angle uh, that you're going to be more effective when it comes to when it comes to to, to hitting with yeah. power, um, which is different than the philosophy of of 15 years ago, which is you know above anything else hit it hard, right? right. It, you know right. It, the 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 kind of pure contact is more important than, than if you hit it sky high or if you, if you, you know, if you hit a a, a grounder. Um, so I think there's been, I think there's been a a philosophical change in the way that people, um, are, are approaching, uh, batting. Um, and this has to do with, again, the analytics associated with launch angle, but you're also seeing hitters doing a, a lot of different stuff when it comes to preparing um, for at bats. They're they're videotaping themselves and watching all of their um, their batting practice swings from from each day, and they're reviewing um, kind of the the shape of their their swing. And so I think there's a more analytic driven and scientific uh, scientifically based approach to analyzing uh, analyzing their swings. Does it mean that they um, you know are less likely to to hit into a shift? Sure, but I'm not sure that's the only explanation. For for it. Um, and, and, and that's, that's kind of my broader point about this, which is legislating out the shift is not gonna, is not gonna solve your problem. I wonder, um, shoot, is there a list? Let me, can I have one other fact that's really fun? Baseball originally did not have, so, you know, the, 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 all the player positions for purposes of scoring have a number associated with them Mm -hmm. and the number order doesn't make any sense, right? Because the shortstop is six. Yes. The reason correct. for that is because originally baseball did not have a shortstop is what I had read. Okay. That was so added later, added which means before you added a shortstop, there was always a shift. Oh, I that see person playing up the middle would always shift to one side or the other based on which side you were hitting. 
Where'd you learn that? That's interesting. I read it online somewhere. Huh. Fascinating. Um, I'm, you know, in scanning all these, all through, uh, through this article, I wish that it would have had more information about particular players and that approach and their approaches. Cause they mentioned Joey Votto and Bryce Harper. And I'm wondering if like, are, as we see, as we continue to collect information and, and data about the shift uh, over the next two to three years, and obviously it's now become the reason why we're going to do that is because it's become a topic of conversation. And so obviously baseball statisticians are going to focus on this thing. Is that going to change how players adapt or approach the game uh, more thoroughly? And I guess what I mean by that is, is a Bryce Harper going to have to spend more time in the batting cage, not necessarily hitting for power, but willing to kind of work on that opposite field swing the same way that like a, that a, that a, a Anthony Rizzo or a Joey Votto have been able to do throughout their career is to consistently um, be able to show the ability to either hit over the shift or hit opposite the shift um, based on a different situation. So I'm wondering if it forces players that are now hitting for power to to have to kind of develop a different kind of game in, in ways that, you know, maybe now they're just, I don't want to say stubborn, but they can get away with it because obviously, you know, hitting for power, um, it, you know, hitting it, it, it is so valued or on base, you know, OBP S plus is so valued. I wonder, I guess I just wonder in the next two to three years, does a different statistic come to matter or inform that statistic more? Does that make sense? No, it makes it makes total sense. And the answer is we can, it, it, it. The answer is that it doesn't make sense to talk about the shift broadly. It makes more sense, like you like you pointed out, to talk about it in in regard to specific players, mm-hmm. right? The 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 general yeah. effectiveness of the shift is meaningless. You should be concerned with what what is the shift? How is how is the shift potentially impacted your production? Does that make sense? If I'm a hitter and yeah. I realize that hitting into the shift, I'm losing 30 points off my batting average. There's reason to think that batting average is important, but that's for a different show. Um, I re- And I, I know that it's taking 30 points off my batting average. Then maybe I do spend more time in the cage working on hitting it to the opposite field. Or maybe I do work really hard on uh, dropping a bunt down the third baseline and taking a single over and over and over again. If the shift is only taking five points off my batting average, maybe I say it's not worth it for me to develop either of those skills because I would rather take a low percentage risk of getting an out that would otherwise not be where there no shift. Um, if there's still an opportunity for me to, you know, hit a home run, you know, to drive one to, to, to deep center or something like that. So I don't know. It, it, it depends on who you are and, and sort of what your style is, but you always have the option of dropping a bunt down the third baseline. Yeah. I know, I know. Rob Rutt just just commented on Instagram. I think he brings up a good point. Is so much of the effectiveness of the shift is pitch location too, and that to me is not just right. A pitcher should be able to hit their location um, relatively consistently, but if you know that a guy hitting is really terrible at low and away pitches, right, or he hits everything on the ground at low and away, you're gonna you're gonna hammer it down there. And to me, the onus in that case is put back on the on the batter. And while that may not matter so much in a regular season baseball, right, over 162 games. I'm guessing that it does matter come playoffs and everything's way more situational. And, you know, I don't know. People are talking about how great the Reds are going to be this year, and maybe they will be. And it would be nice to see Joey Votto, who is arguably, I I don't know, in my opinion, the best hitter of the last 10 years. Um, to see what he does in those difficult situations. Because I would not be surprised if if that's the kind of guy who's way more productive in the postseason than we've seen from like a Bryce Harper. Yeah, tell me if I'm wrong here. The people who think the shift should be legislated out of the game are upset because power hitters are losing singles. I know, I know. That's what's wrong with baseball? Yeah. That big power hitters are hitting too many singles? 
or, yeah. or, or aren't hitting enough singles. If you're a big power hitter and you hit it on the ground, you know, between first and second base, you probably fucked up. That's not what you were trying to do. I mean, look at the guys who were complaining about it, right? Harper, Joey Gallo, like I, they're power hitters, but they lack that other part of their game. What is kind of have to have to be an all around player. And I'm like, dude, think about uh, let's see, Red Sox, right? Like Mookie Betts, the dude can hit for power really, really well. But he can also put a ball in play in the opposite yeah, field. Hit it wherever. Exactly. That great, is great bowler as well. Won a, won a pro-am this weekend. Did he really? Yeah. Well, congratulations, Mookie. I mean, this stuff matters. Well, I think we just don't – because we have to consume so much baseball content for those five months, we we, we get drawn to, to you know home runs in the same way we get drawn to touchdowns from a, from a quarterback. Yeah. But when it comes down to like – the the games that really count at the end of the season, you kind of have to be able to to change not your swing, but you have to be able to adapt to pitchers and locations and all of this. And so, um, I mean, this is just what we're, we're seeing people doing it. Let me let me let me describe a situation to you. You're yeah. in a you're in an obvious bunt situation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the obvious bunt situation. Let's say it's an NL game. You got a pitcher up, dude on first base. You're down by a run. You know, nobody out. Obvious bunt situation. The third baseman comes three quarters of the way down the line, mm-hmm. right? Is basically standing even with the pitcher, maybe a little bit farther forward. Why don't we care about that? I know. That's an exaggerated defensive position that's anticipating where you're going to put the ball mm-hmm. that maybe gives you an opportunity to turn two and neutralizes the bunt. Why do we not freak out about that? Philosophically, it's the exact same thing as the shift. It's an exaggerated defensive posture that gives you potentially an advantage. You know what you could do in that situation? You could rifle a ball down the third baseline and take that dude's head off. Don't bunt the ball anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it seems pretty hypocritical. I agree. Hey, we got to do one more story um, before we get off this because we might as well get another baseball story in. Uh, I don't know. That article you sent me from Baseball America is really, really awesome. It's about the death of scouting. And a good transition would be, I love that quote from Pete Rose, who, by the way, yesterday was the anniversary of him getting banned from the Hall of Fame for life. I think it was 20 years ago. No, 30 years ago. Something crazy like that. So uh, where do you stand on that? I'm, I'm a big no. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big no on his on being banned. Yeah, yeah he should, he should, should be, be in the Hall of Fame. He should be Hall of Fame. All right. Um, let me see this quote. It's kind of funny. Uh, somebody had asked Pete Rose. Uh, hold on. I got to find it. I should have pulled up. Damn it. Uh, should have had a longer production oh, meeting. I should. I should. I should. Uh, okay. So um, a baseball analyst approached Rose in 1985 asking him which player hit more fly balls than any other player and he said Gary Redis how'd you know that I just watch his swing look at his swing it's obvious and basically the argument is you know when it comes to scouting sometimes you need data sometimes you need the eye test sometimes you need both I think um anyhow uh uh I don't know. I like this article go ahead it's about the death yeah. of scouting you go ahead Gary well, and, and, and I mean that example that anecdote about about Pete Rose is sort of in defense of scouting, right? It says there are people who have enough experience and, and, and they've been around baseball long enough and they know to look for subtle things that the average fan isn't going to see that based on those things, they can judge whether or not someone is, is the likelihood of becoming uh, you know, a, a good professional prospect or something like that. The, the top part of this article is about how teams are starting to think that that's not worth it anymore, that you've got, 
a huge wave of teams who are getting rid of their professional scouts. Well, they say estimated 60 scouts were let go in 2018 from, from professional baseball. And that number may seem huge, but professional organizations have tons and tons and tons of scouts. They're scouting high school. They're scouting other countries. They're scouting minor league. They're scouting college. They're, you know, they're scouting all of this stuff, not to mention the professional level scouts who do advanced scouting, um, which I think would be the best job ever where they go to the team you're going to play next and, or, you know, two, 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 two series down the road. And and check out the pitchers who are going to pitch against you, um, and that sort of stuff. But it's still it's no it's no small potatoes that sixty scouts are being are being let or have been let go, and that more are likely to be let go. And this article suggests, I think, correctly that the reason is that teams are are getting more of a benefit, more bang for their buck with their analytics guys who are doing scouting inside, you know, at at the at the at the HQ right at their headquarters, and who are watching video. Uh, and that the cost of having a bunch of scouts that you send out to watch players is is uh, is is less important. Um, I will say this for this for this for, for this conversation. There's been a long held belief that analytics are only valuable once you get to a certain level. That the stats that a high school player has, because you don't know who they're playing against. You know what I mean? If you take some dude who's hitting six fifty uh, in in Iowa. And he's and he's pitching against you know some junior high kid who, who throws the ball thirty five miles an hour. Maybe that's not a good. That's a good. You know the stats then sometimes don't don't tell the entire picture. This is all in Moneyball that analytics start to fail when sample sizes becomes too small or they become unknown. And so you do you do probably need scouts at those at those lower levels. But once you're talking about college players or minor league players or you know uh, other professional. Uh, leagues outside of um, you know the kind of a system a ball system in in the United States you know once you know that they're playing against other competent baseball players mm-hmm. you can really get a good sense of, of who a player is just by looking at their stats and by doing the analytic work and by looking at video yeah you get uh, your data set is a little bit better basically um, I don't know uh, I tend to think that a lot of these teams are just looking for more efficient approaches to player analysis and development and by efficient I don't mean just like better um, you know keeping the process a little quicker but I also think it's saving money as you'd kind of pointed out you got a, a team of 60 scouts that you're that you're flying around the country for um, a year and that gets really really pricey or you're flying them outside of the country um, you can get you know you get footage on them. And that's, a, that's another element of this too, is the change in technology, not so much in the analytical technology, but the fact that you can get um, smartphone video of dudes hitting, you know, you can get data from uh, from game performance relatively simple uh, just through email or, you know, some sort of shared file. Like it's just, that's the thing that we kind of maybe overlooked here is the fact that it's not just the actual active scouting or assessment that's changing, but the tools that get used for that. And I guess the article did talk about the uh, the the gun, right? The, the radar gun. Yeah. But I wish it would have talked a little bit more about it because that certainly is that tool, right? That technology that changes the game um so much more but uh, i know i gotta run to a meeting uh garrett watts in order to appease you yes Lindsay vaughn did retire the reason why perhaps we didn't make a big deal out of it is because i thought that she had kind of retired after the last olympics you know i thought she, I thought she had too yeah yeah she made it she, she tried i know she was she was going to make a run at things trying to get better or trying to um to uh get back at it but just it never really I I, fo- I follow her on the on the social medias and I I remember because that was just a couple of days ago that she had a pretty heart wrenching yeah. post about getting hurt again and just trying to you know 
the post was yeah, about wanting to make sure she can ski with her kids one day. It's one of those retirements where you'd think, you know, you're not, you have not aged out of this sport yet, but someone who's genuinely concerned about, you know, this is kind of Megatron, you know, I want to make sure my, my hands still work when I'm, when I'm older and that I've got some sort of quality of life. So that's a, that's, that's, we should have had that on the list. That's a, it's an interesting topic and it's a dangerous, dangerous fucking sport. I mean, I've seen her flown off a, off a, off a mountain by a helicopter. I think once or at least once, but maybe twice or three times just watching her ski is absolutely frightening. They go so fast and they put, I mean, it's not even just the threat of danger, but I think what they put their bodies through just in a normal run is insane. I mean, they're, dude, it is so hard on your legs, on every part of your body. And then, you know, you throw in an accident and you really fuck something up and then it becomes extremely dangerous. Like in the same way we could talk about downhill uh, uh, mountain biking, right? Like literally putting yourself in danger every time you do that. So um, I would put those downhill skiers in terms of physical fitness up against oh yeah damn near anybody oh yeah for sure because if you follow if you ever follow i mean lindsey lindsey vaughn's a pretty good follow on on twitter and facebook but she's constantly posting her workout videos and you're like i don't i don't i i mean i couldn't do any of it but yeah i don't think most people could do some of the workout stuff she's doing it's it's 24 7 just all year long i guess not anymore good good for her great career great career she was Um, a great great american uh olympic athlete and you know we the 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 comment is a good one because you know, media does a bad job not being too kind of male sports centric and and we have to be uh, cognizant of that as well. And that's definitely something that should have made it on the agenda. So call, call out well received. Yeah, I'm kind of sad that she is retiring though officially. Um, she was just a good spokesperson for U.S. skiing uh, in general. I think that's like you're kind of highlighting. We take it for granted, I think, in Colorado that skiing and even snowboarding are um, – respected sports because it's there it's part of our culture it's what we see when we go to the mountains or it's what we see you know in the stores where we get clothes for our kids and all of this but i think you get outside of the mountain west or even the east coast and it has it's i don't know that it's it's given the respect that it really deserves especially in terms of whether or not these people are athletes because i think obviously they are right they are athletes you made that very clear um i would want to close there but i just want i just Now's the perfect time to say I was listening to an interview with a um, rally racer yesterday and he was talking about his training. And I thought like that's an overlooked uh, element to or that's an overlooked uh, athleticism. Um, That's an over a sport that we don't really consider being athletic. But I guess, you know, when you're when you're doing 24 hour you know, marathons, uh, of racing, you have to be, and you're making hairpin turns, you do all this stuff, right? There's, there's certainly a level of physical fitness that goes well beyond what you and I are doing with this fucking podcast. All right. No debate there. No debate. Uh, okay. Uh, fantastic show. It was nice to get back into it and talk, talk in depth about some smart things. Um, we'll do this again next week. We'll see what happens, what plays out the next week. We still have Bryce Harper and Manny Machado out there going nowhere. And that could be part of this advanced scouting thing too, right? Like still, this could be still more interesting than the uh, Super Bowl. <sighs> For sure. All right, buddy. You have a fantastic day. We'll talk later. Later. See ya.